scripture chapter, beginning with the sixth, huh? <laughs> the sixteenth verse. <clears throat> this is, if you'll keep in mind, this is just prior to the time when when Jesus leaves now and goes over to the Garden of Gethsemane and is arrested shortly thereafter. About two hours before his arrest is is where we are now. Maybe two or three hours. I'm not real sure. But anyway, it's just a matter of hours before he ends this period of time where he can talk to these 11 apostles, these 11 closest people to him. So these are the very last words he speaks. I've said that for about two chapters now. These are the last words he speaks to them. And your last words are always the most important words, those that you want them to hear and remember the most of the things you say. If you know you have a short time to live, you make the most of that time and you say the things that you know that they're going to have to, to remember and hang on to and cling to, you know, if you're going to be away from them. And so here we come down to the very final bit of this discourse. And he begins to talk about prayer. There's a lot in this portion about prayer and the need for prayer in our lives. There's a, a desperate need for all of us to understand what prayer is, what it can mean to us in our Christian experience. And I think probably this is the most neglected area of our lives. If we really analyzed our own personal lives, I think we would come up short in the area of prayer. And Jesus said, this is your most important thing above everything else. There's no way that you can live your life victoriously if there's not a real deep prayer life there. All right, so he says a little while, he says something complicated to them. A little later on, he's going to say, this is, these are proverbs. I've been speaking to you in proverbial language, or I've been speaking to you in, in the parable-type language. And then he says a little later on, I'm going to talk to you plainly now. But listen to what he says that they can't understand. A little while, and you see me no more. Again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by this? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And by this, because I'm going to my Father. So they asked, What is this little while that he speaks of? We do not know what he means. And Jesus knew that they were wanting to question him and said, Are you discussing what I said a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. Now read that much together so that you could see how many times, seven times, he used the phrase, a little while. A little while. Seven different times that phrase came up in this last period of conversation. I think what he's trying to do here is, is expose us to, us to the fact that, that there's such a brevity. There's a brevity to it. It's short. It's a little while. Compared to eternity, it's such a little while. And we act as though it's the whole of eternity. We treat it like it's all there is. And he says this is a very short time. There is much more to be considered here than this little while that you have sojourning on this earth. And he says to them, when you try to understand what I'm talking about by a little while, this was one of the few times that they began to question among themselves. Up until this time, do you remember how many times they've questioned him? He would be giving his discourse. He would be talking to them, and he would be interrupted at intervals by people asking him a question. They would ask him, why can't we go with you? Someone would ask, what is the way? 
somebody else would ask, how will we know the Father? Show us the Father and we'll, that will suffice us. Someone else would ask, uh, how will it be manifested? They would ask many questions, many questions. And Jesus said, these are the things, you know, up until this point you have asked openly. But all of a sudden, at this point, the disciples begin to question among themselves. And for some reason, they don't ask him directly, what are you talking about when you say this confusing thing? A little while, you will see me no more. And then a little while, you will see me. Apparently, it was one of these cases where if you've been in a classroom for three and a half years, you finally reach a place where you realize when you open your mouth and ask a question that you should know the answer to, it just shows your ignorance, so you keep your mouth shut. Apparently, this is where we've come to at this point. They're beginning to be very embarrassed about asking things they know they should know the answer to. They know when he says something to them, he's speaking directly, and they should understand by this time what he's talking about, but they didn't. And so they begin to question among themselves. But there are two things that we need to understand about this period, what he's talking about when he says, a little while you'll see me no more, and then a little while and you will see me. There are two different schools of thought here. Well, there are really, I guess, scores of different schools of thought, but two main ones that I want you to keep in mind. And that was that he was speaking of, okay, a very short matter of hours, matter of hours you will see me in fact in a couple of hours they would not see him again because they deserted him before he died after the garden experience they scattered each to his own home or to his own hiding place and there were very few even very few followers who were with him to the very end when he was hanging on the cross they weren't there they weren't there so that little while just a short matter of hours you're going to see me physically and then, you know, you won't see me anymore. And then in a, a little while, you'll see me again because on the third day, he would rise again and he would appear to them again. So you can look at it like that. You can say, he must be saying here, you know, when I'm taken away from you out of the garden and they arrest me and I'm taken away to, to Caiaphas and Annas and all of these people are going to look into all of that as we go along. When I'm taken away to these mock trials and then I'm crucified and then I'm put into the tomb, you're not going to be with me during that period of time. But then I still love you so much I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to come back to you and appear to you again. So in a little while you will see me again. That could very well be what he's talking about. It could be talking about something different here, because he, especially because of the fact that a little later on, down in verse 21, he begins to use the analogy, draws the picture of the woman in childbirth, having the labor pains. And when this was thought of in Jewish terminology, when a Jew thought of this, and he remembered back to the Old Testament, many times it would be speaking of the two ages. The Jews thought all time was divided into two ages. They thought of the present age, they were living in the present age, and this age was altogether horrible, altogether a mess, nothing good about it. And then they thought of an age to come out here. This was the golden age. And out here in the golden age, when Messiah would come and set up that kingdom, everything would be perfect. So there were two ages they thought of. And they thought it came in between here, just before the age to come, all the earth would be in travail. All the earth would be turned upside down like a woman giving birth to a baby and having the, the pain of childbirth. This would be what would happen to the earth. And when this would happen, all earth would convulse. And when it convulsed, everybody would know it was time for the Lord to come and usher in the kingdom and usher in the millennial age, usher in the golden age. 
And so they could have been thinking in these terms. They, they could have been thinking, a little while you'll see me no more. I'll be gone. Even after I've ascended back to the Father, there's a period of time you won't see me anymore. And then you'll see me again when I come, when I come again, the second coming. So that probably is, is what he's thinking about here. And if you'll keep that in mind, you can think in both of these terms because I plan probably before I get through to use both of these schools of thought in, in looking at it. Okay, I, I prefer to think that he's thinking more. He's talking more about the, the age to come when he goes away and comes back again than what, would ha what will happen when they see him again and they're with him and their joy is totally complete. They'll not have to ask any questions because they know everything. They'll know everything in its fullness, and he'll mention this a little later on. Okay, some of the disciples, this is at the point where he says this. They began to question among themselves, and they says, what does he mean? What does he mean? And they asked the questions. Instead of going to the source of truth, instead of going to the, ones who, the one who could give them the answers, at this late date, they're beginning to talk among themselves. Instead of going to the source of truth, he said, I am the truth. They began to question among themselves. But what they hadn't understood up to this point was that Jesus, even in his incarnate state, knew everything that was going on in your mind. I don't think we believe that now. I don't think for a minute we've ever grasped the truth of the fact that he knows everything that's in our, in our, our hearts. Everything we think he knows. If you, if you believe that, it would change. It would change your life. If you thought there weren't those private times where he couldn't get in there, you'd be surprised what we would do with those times where we sit and our thoughts are wrong. Our attitudes are wrong. So much is wrong about us. If we thought he was observing this, he was looking at us, it would change our lives. We would start doing something about surrender to the point where he controls even our thoughts. All right, so uh, he, at this point, he's reading their mind to the point where he comes down and he says, you're wanting to question him and said, are you discussing what I said a little while? See, he knew what they were talking about. He knew what they were thinking. And when they ex he exposes this to them, it always blows their mind. It always blows a person's mind. Anytime in the scriptures where he begins to tell them what they're thinking, because they don't understand that. And this begins to make them think he's something more than man. And that's going to follow up a little bit later. All right, so after he says this, this is what you're thinking, this is what you're questioning, he really seems to change the subject a little bit. He didn't answer that question right then. He didn't tell them what the answer to this, this query, or this problem, this um, parable or proverb or whatever you want to call it. He didn't give them the answer you would expect here. He changes a little bit. He says, this is the truth, verily. Whatever your translation says, this is the truth. And every time he says, verily, He's going to say, bank on this, bank on this. This is a truth. Hang on to it. You're going to need to remember this. In very truth, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will be glad. But though you will be plunged into grief, your grief will be turned to joy. And he gives them a picture of exactly what's going to happen out here. They were frustrated even at this point. They didn't understand any of this. All in the world they wanted of Jesus, they, they believed that he was the greatest leader they had ever had. All they wanted of him was that even at the very last minute, he'd do what they thought was best and set up that kingdom on earth and rule. You know, do something for them in a tangible way, a physical way. We always want something on the outside. Very seldom are we aware of the fact that the most important thing in the world is not what happens on the outside, but what happens on the inside. See, we are spiritual beings. We're spiritual beings. 
And what happens on, in the heart area, in the soul area, is what's important. What takes place as far as change inside is all that counts. It's not what's on the ex outside or the exterior things. All right, so he says, uh, you're going to be caught up even more so than now. In your frustration now, your doubt, you're not understanding now. It's going to be worse. Right out here, in a matter of hours, you're going to be mourning. You're going to be weeping. You're going to think the end of the world has come. That's where you're going to be. He never left him not knowing what was going to happen. Have you noticed he spelled it out about as clearly as you could spell everything out? And they should have been so prepared because... If you know what's going to happen, you can get prepared for it. You can get solidly fixed in what you, you know, what's going to happen. And you can be, not be caught off guard. It's when you're caught off guard that it shakes you and shakes your faith. But you remember the account when Mary came to the tomb and found that it was empty and the Christ had risen from the grave. He spoke to her and she ran back with the news like he told her to, to the disciples. And how did he find them? Mourning, weeping. Just exactly what he had said would happen. They were all full of grief, weeping, mourning. Do you remember when uh, the account of the two men on the road to Emmaus, on the Emmaus Road, and the scripture says they were very sad. When Jesus found them, they were extremely sad. They were weeping. They were sad people. Exactly what he said came to pass. They were caught up after his crucifixion and his burial in grief. And he had explained to them, you cannot see perceptively when you're filled with grief. If you can't get your life cleared of grief, you will never be able to see. You'll never be able to see clearly the things that I want you to see. He had told them this just in the last portion of scripture I think we had. He said, you're sitting around full of grief. All right, so he says, the world will be glad. When this happens, when I'm crucified, you'll be caught up in grief. That's not where I want you, but that's what's going to happen to you. The world will be glad. The world think, will think that it's the victor. The world, and when he speaks of the world, remember when we had the, the section on the world, the world is anybody or anything in enmity with God. Any, anybody or anything outside of God's plan is the, the, uh, the enmity or the enemy of God. And so the world, the enemy of God, will be very glad because they'll think they have done away with this Jesus, this Son of God. And remember that from the very beginning of time, the world had tried to do away with Jesus even before he was incarnate. Have you ever thought about the fact that even the many times that the, that the world had tried to annihilate the Jewish race, the devil was trying to rid the world of the Jewish race through whom Jesus would be born. So they've been trying to get rid of him forever. And now it seems that he was gone. It seems that they were the victor. It seems that they won the battle. And he says that's exactly what's going to happen. All my enemies will be rejoicing in the fact that they've won the battle. But listen. He says, but though you will be plunged into grief, the tables are going to change. The tables are going to turn. It's going to be the world that's thrown into chaos because I conquered the world. In the experience on the cross, that was the conquering of the world, the conquering of Satan. And he said, you're going to learn by way of the Holy Spirit when he comes and teaches you these truths out here a few days in the future. You will learn that I was the victor on the cross. I was the one who won the victory on the cross. It was in the resurrection that it was shown. 
But that blood that was shed that day on the cross that was the propitiation for sin, the cleansing of the worlds from sin, this was the victory. This was the victory when he didn't stay dead. And he said, where they thought they had won the battle when they killed me, they're going to have to turn around and face one day that they were the losers. They didn't win anything. And you, in, in, the, same, in, in the same period of time, you, and then you will receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. And when all this happens, you will know that you are overcomers. You are the victors. In me, you have won victory over the world. You are more than conquerors. They learned that, didn't they? That was one thing they learned, that they were more than conquerors. It's the same thing for us today. We are more than conquerors through what happened. So he says that grief will be turned into joy. It's almost like a, an evolving process. It's not like it's just grief, joy. It's like it turns into joy. There was a need for the grief before there was a joy. There was a need for the grief. There's a, a need for a time of real trial before you'll ever come to the place where you know joy. Before you know it, turns into joy when you surrender it to the Lordship of Christ. When, you, when that happens, it's like the psalm that said, do you remember where it said, hold on my child, or the song, and it's taken from a psalm, hold on my child, joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. If you'll hold on, if you'll be faithful, if you won't throw up your hands and wring your hands and die, nervous breakdown, you know, just fall apart at the seams, if you'll hold on, you can count on the fact that all grief for the child of God turns into joy. You'll look back on it one day and see it happen. Every single one of us will, will find out if we're persistent in our faith. If we hang on to our faith, we'll find we'll all look back and say the darkest days that we ever had were the days that turned into joy. And a woman in labor, here's where he uses this earthly analogy. A woman in labor is in pain because her time has come. And when the child is born, she forgets the anguish in her joy that a man has been born in the world. This was the time where they really believed that a man was the only thing he rejoiced over when a boy was born. I mean, if it was a girl, they didn't do a whole lot of rejoicing. because. And he spoke to the people who understood at this time. But he was the one who broke down the barrier and made us know that we were important too. And he says, when, when you give birth to that child, while you're going through the labor pains, you think it's the worst thing in the whole world that ever happened to you. But once you've gotten through that and you hold that little baby in your hand, you know for a fact that that was the greatest thing you ever went through in your whole life. Now, I've heard many, many people say that. I had, the only one that I had, I had by way of cesarean section. And even if it was local, even if I was awake and I, I knew the whole thing, the operation, the pulling the baby out, all the pain that went with that, which was probably more than any labor pain you've ever been through. I can look back on that and I can say with all honesty, I would do that again and again and again for the joy of a baby. I would, and you would too. So I'm not real sure that I think when you have labor pains, you never remember any of it, do you? Does anybody, has anybody had one? Do you still remember that that was kind of gross? <laughs> but how does it compare? In comparison with the joy of that child, it's like nothing. And this is what he's saying here. All right, so he says, so it is with you. In the moment you are sad at heart, right at this moment, you're so sad, you know. The moment before that baby is born, you think it's just about the worst thing in the world that happens before the joy comes. 
You think this is just about the end of the world. He said, I know that. You're sad at heart. But I shall see you again, and when you, uh, and then you will be joyful, and no one shall rob you of your joy. There will come a time, he's saying, and if you look at these in these two schools of thought, remember the two? After he dies, and after he's raised again, and the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and indwells them forever and ever, never to leave them again, nobody can take that joy from you, right? He comes to give us joy. Jesus joy he comes to give us Jesus peace and nobody can take that from you if you look at it in that respect I'm, I think of a uh, an incident that happened when we were in Mobile and there was a, a teacher in the uh, the school at the church first through sixth grades or something it was about the fourth grade as Paul was a dynamic Christian and in that classroom you could count on it no matter who came to that classroom you knew that before they got out they were going to somehow through arithmetic or English or whatever they were going to find you know some good news about Jesus Christ in that school in, in Cottage Hill Baptist Church so anyway at the end of this period this year passed and she had, there was this little boy whose parents were atheists avowed atheists and this little boy, about fourth grader, uh, found the Lord that year in her class. And she was so th he was so thrilled, and she was th so thrilled, and she gave him a Bible. And he took the Bible home, and his parents took the Bible in front of him, tore it to pieces. This actually happened. Tore it to pieces, threw it in the trash can, went to her, and said, Never, never, ever give our child a Bible again. Don't ever send him home with anything, that even pages that came out of a Bible. And the little boy was so crushed over it. They left him in the school. And they said, another thing, you take him into that sanctuary every now and then. He is never to go in a sanctuary again. We forbid his ever going into a sanctuary. There was nothing you could do about that. But this little boy came to her one day, and Mrs. Paul was crying over it. She was broken hearted over it. And this little boy said they were going to move. And all she could think of was these parents taking this child away from the only Christian influence he had. And the little boy said, Miss Paul, don't worry about it. He said, you know, they can take my Bible, and they can tear it up, and they can throw it away. And they can keep me out of the sanctuary. They can keep me out of the church. But, you know, they can't take Jesus out of my heart. That little boy understood more than most of us understand today. And he knew for a fact that what he had when he received Christ was something you couldn't take away from him. The joy was going to be his forever no matter what his parents did or didn't do in the way of leading him. Oh, it's their problem. You can't tell me those parents. I wish I'd hear from them today. I wouldn't be surprised if they're both dynamos for Christ. Because <laughs> if you have a child like that, that's going to affect you. A child that dedicated and that sincere in what he believes is going to have an effect on parents. I believe that. But Jesus said, no one's going to rob you of this joy. If you're thinking in terms of it being when the Spirit comes and, and fills you full of, of the Spirit of God and you, ha you know the joy of Christ within you, then nobody can take that from you no matter what the outward circumstances are. But if you're looking at it in the school of out here in the future when the golden age comes, when Christ comes again and we, lived with him, we live with Him forever, that joy is totally complete then. When He comes again, there will be nothing but complete joy. So if you look at it in that light, you can see what He's talking about too. You see, all of this fills in with both of these thoughts. 
when that day comes, you will ask nothing of me. And in very truth, here again, verily, this is the truth I tell you. If you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. So far, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be complete. Now, we begin in the area of prayer here. And he says, up to this point, um, there's going to come a day. Up to this point, you have asked me questions, and they had. We've seen that over and over again, how they ask him questions. There are two things to remember here, and that's to ask, and there are different words. Two totally different words for ask are used here. And so we, get, we clear up any misunderstanding of what he's talking about. In the first place, when he says, uh, you will not ask anything of me, you won't ask questions of me, that word does mean literally familiar entreaty or to ask a question to ask a question. Now, when he goes back again, when we pray, we don't busy ourselves praying just asking questions because very seldom you, you just get a, an audible answer to your question. If you have a question today, what do you do? If you have a question about something about life, you go to the Scripture, don't you? And you dig and you seek and you find answers in the Scripture. You don't use your prayer time asking questions. That's not what prayer's for. So he says, there's going to come, this is right out here in a matter of just a few days. He's going to say, I'm going to be taken from you in the flesh. I won't be here incarnate in the flesh. You won't have me to ask questions of like you just come and you say, Jesus, Master, tell us. What's the answer to this? What are you talking about? You won't have me like that anymore. That's not going to be possible for you to take advantage of anymore. And sometimes I wish today we had him just for a little period of time. Don't you wish you had, don't you have some questions you'd really like to get some answers to? And you could say to all knowing Christ, you could say, tell me what is the answer to this? What did you mean? What did Paul mean by this? I, I can't wait to get there and find out some answers to some questions about some things Paul said. But we don't have him in the flesh to ask questions like that. If we have questions about the Christian life, dig, search, seek in the scripture, and you will find satisfaction. You'll find the answers you're looking for. But that's not what you do in your prayer life. He says, this is the truth. You ask the Father, and if you ask the Father for anything in my name, in my name, he will give it to you. So far, you've asked nothing in my name. Even the, the model prayer that he gave to them didn't say in the name of Jesus at the end. So far, whatever you had to ask, you asked of him personally. You didn't pray. Even at that point, you didn't pray to the Father and pray in Jesus' name. That, was not, uh, that didn't take place until after he had gone back and after he had paid the price for us to ask in his name. And so I've written again up here, and if you missed that day, I want you to write this down somewhere because I think it's something you need, all of us need to memorize what it means to ask in Jesus' name. We use that lightly. It's like just almost something we don't even think about when we pray. No matter what prayer we pray, we say in Jesus' name. And we don't understand what we're saying most of the time. To ask in His name's name means to ask within His will and purpose by His authority. By His authority, within His will and purpose. Upon the basis of His work as Redeemer and for the glory of both Father and Son, which takes the selfishness out of praying in Jesus' name. This is what he's talking about when he says, you come to the Father through me in my name. You ask according to my will and according to my purpose for your life. And if we would ever understand that that's the only thing that's right for us, we would ask, not selfishly. We would ask. We would say, when we go to him, we would say, Father, this is what I think, but, but he's not nearly so important. What I think is what you think because you know what's best. See, that's how you pray in his name.
You don't go telling him what you think ought to be done because if we did that and we got answers to our prayers according to what we think is best, we'd be in a mess. How many times have you thought something was best and you found out one day it didn't? That was the worst thing in the world that could have happened for you. All right, so this would clear that up. There's, there's one earthly story, a story that really happened that, that I think makes this clear. And sometimes we have to use earthly analogies or earthly stories because we are earthly people. We're people, you know, who don't have God's mind at this point. We don't have the fullness of God's mind to understand. So it helps many times if you can look at something and it, it can make it a little clearer. This is the reason Jesus used parables so many times. But there was a story that was told about a young um, man who was... Um, on a, uh, during the war between the states, and he was on a battlefield, and uh, he was dying. There was no question about it. He would die. And this other young man came to him out on the field, and he knelt by him, and he administered help. He did everything he could do to help him, knowing that he was going to die. But he spent much time and much energy at the, the price, really, at the danger of endangering his own life. And he did, when he finally realized that he couldn't help him, he said to them, the one that was helping said to the young man who was dying, he said, when, if I get out of here, if I live, and if I get back home, get to safety, is there anything that I can do for you? And the young man who was dying said, maybe there's something I can do for you. And he wrote down just a few words on a little tattered piece of paper. And he wrote a few words. And the young man didn't even read them. And he took them. This one died. And he got back to safety. And he had kept that little piece of paper for quite some time. And as years went on, he, he came to a time in his life where he didn't have a job. He was really up against the wall. He was having some hard times. And something recalled to his memory that piece of paper that that young man had given. He said, maybe someday, there's some way I can help you. Maybe one day you'll need this. My father's a very wealthy man. And one day maybe he can help you. And so he found this piece of paper and he went to this big plant. It was a huge plant. And he couldn't get through to the father. See, he couldn't get through to the, this other boy's father. He was so far up. He was the president of the company. And you couldn't get through his secretaries and all this force that was uh, in between him and, the, and this lad's father. All right, so finally, he, he had been sending his own card. See, he had been sending his card with his name on it, and nobody would pay any attention to him. And finally, he remembered this little piece of paper, and he pulled it out, and he gave that to someone. And before he knew it, the president of the company, the father of this, this lad, came out, came to him and said, Why didn't you send this immediately? Why didn't you, you get this to me immediately? This is from my son. And he said, Well, I didn't think. I just didn't think. And so he said, Tell me what you need immediately. Tell me what you need. And he began to tell him about the fact that he didn't have a job. He was really hard-pressed. And he said, Name, name whatever you want done. Name it. Name it. And the end of the story went that when he got through, he said, whatever I can do with you because of Charlie. See, Charlie's note had said... that he didn't want to do for this young man because he had been of service and aid to his son and all he needed was Charlie's name. He could go to the father and I want you to remember this a little later on. He went in personally to the father, right? He didn't have to go by way of anyway. The father came, he, they met. The two of them together met. It was in Charlie's name because of Charlie's name that they got together. That was, to be, that was sure. 
It was Charlie's name that made this possible, but they met on a one-to-one basis because of Charlie's name, and the, the father of Charlie began to answer the things that were needed in this, this young man's life. This is kind of the way prayer is, and that's a, that's a true story, but it's very much, it helps us to understand what we're doing when we go in Jesus' name. You see, the father loved the son so much and if we're faithful to the Son, that gives us that entrance, obedient to the Son, help the Son, we can go into the Father and He says, whatever it is that you need, whatever your needs are, that's what I want to do for you because of my Son. So we need the Son. You can't get to the Father without the Son. I was watching a television program the other day, and I heard somebody say something that was so in error, I couldn't believe it, I almost had a heart attack right there, but he said about the Jews, he said, we have so much in common, we have the same Heavenly Father. We don't have the same Heavenly Father. To as many as received Him, to them gave the power to become sons of God. We have a relationship. The only people who have a Heavenly Father in God are the ones who have received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. So we don't have a Heavenly Father in common with anybody who has rejected the Son. You remember that? I almost fell off my chair when he said we had a Heavenly Father in common. They've rejected the Son and they cannot get to the Father except by acceptance of the Son. He said that. All right, so he says, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be complete. We, we have not because we ask not. We just muddle through life and we just wrestle with every power and every principality. Man, we just have a tough time. Because we don't understand what provision is there in prayer. We have never grasped the fact that that provision is there. And we can go to Him, we can express our needs. Now remember this, all this is involved. But when we're in the area of witnessing, whatever it is, if it's in accordance with His will. If you go to your father, your earthly father, and you ask of Him something that He knows is wrong for you, He's not going to give you permission to do that or give that to you, right? You wouldn't do that if you're a responsible parent at all. And God is much more responsible and much wiser than earthly parents are. So keep that in mind. And that makes it easy to go to him and say, Lord, this is, you know, Father, this is what my need is. This is what I think. But it doesn't matter what I think. What I really want more than anything else is that you meet the needs of my life according to your will. According to your will. And when you pray like that, begin to watch the joy become complete. You're right in the palm of his hand, right in the center of his will. And your joy is complete. Turn to 1 Thessalonians uh, 5, 16, and 17. It says, be always joyful, pray continually, give thanks whatever happens, for this is what God in Christ wills for you. It's really the same thing. Paul was saying what he had learned from this principle or this portion of Scripture over here. Be always joyful. The way to be joyful is to pray continually. I mean, be in a constant state of prayer, right in the center of his palm at all times. For this is what Christ, give thanks whatever happens. That's a little tricky part he put in there that you'd almost wish he left out because I think it's easy to, easier to pray and it's easier to, uh, to do almost anything than to be thankful in all things, to give thanks in all things. This is the will of God for you is to say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I thank you for it. I thank you for it. And there's where we make our biggest mistakes and that's why our joy is not full. But that's one of the places he begins to speak of your joy. Philippians 4, 6 is another one. 
have no anxiety, but in everything make your requests known to God in prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Then the peace of God, which is beyond our utmost understanding, will keep guard over your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. Pray about everything. Don't worry about anything. And in all things, give thanksgiving and watch your joy. Watch your joy become complete. This is what he's talking about there. Till now, I've been using figures of speech. He said, oh, one thing I want to, to share with you that I read, it was in Arthur Pink's commentary, but he says John Gerhardt is responsible for this. But the benefit of prayer, he says, is so great it can't be expressed. Now listen to the, the statements he makes about prayer. Prayer is the dove which, when sent out, returns again, bringing with it the olive leaf, namely peace of heart. Peace of heart. You want peace of heart? Prayer is the dove that brings the olive leaf of peace of heart to us. Prayer is the golden chain which God holds fast and lets not go until he blesses. The blessing comes as a result of prayer. Prayer is the Moses rod which brings forth the water of consolation out of the rock of salvation. Prayer is what consoles us. You see, all the things consoles, blesses. Peace comes from prayer. Prayer is Samson's jawbone, which smites down our enemies. Prayer is David's harp, before which the evil spirit flies. Prayer is how we defeat. The devil's defeated. Prayer is how our enemies are taken care of. Prayer is the key to heaven's treasures. And what's the one area of our life that's most neglected? Prayer. If prayer is all of these things, Tell me why we're not on our knees in prayer, the biggest portion of our waking hours. Which brings us to a point where our pastor is, is starting for us, getting us started in a, a, a prayer vigil around the clock, 24-hour prayer time. Now, if prayer does all these things, would you tell me why every single born-again child of God in this fellowship would not be rushing to give his name to be a part of this kind of prayer. Not, we don't know how to pray. And Jesus said, this is the key to your being able to stand in times of trouble and have peace and joy in the midst of it. All right, so he says, till now I've been using figures of speech. A time is coming when I shall no longer use figures, but tell you of the Father in plain words. When that day comes, you will make your request in my name, and I do not say that I shall pray to the Father for you, for the Father loves you himself because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. And he makes a statement after this, but let's stop right there and see what he says because just a few Tuesday nights ago I had a lady out in my Bible study who was there just for that one night who didn't understand this. this I didn't even know this was here. I wish I'd known it that night. But she said, you know, you keep talking about praying to the Father. And we can't pray to God, she said. God is too high up. God is too lofty. God is too perfect. The only person we can pray to is Jesus. And Jesus has to pray for us. Well, Jesus is, per is just as perfect as God the Father. But she didn't understand that. And she felt that she couldn't go to the Father, see. Now listen to what he said here. He says, uh, the Father loves you himself. Listen, we think of God, the Father, as the, the judge, the one who just throws out judgment, and we think of Jesus as some sweet person who came along to pacify God the Father. But the Scripture tells us that God the Father loved us in that while we were yet sinners, He sent His Son to die for us. God has always loved us. 
God has loved us from the very beginning of time. When he created us, he loved us. There's always been this tremendous love and hunger for us to come to him and fellowship with him. Now remember that. And Jesus said, I won't have to go to the Father and pray for you. I won't have to do that for you. You can go into the presence of the Father by way of in my name to be sure. My name will be attached to it. But you can do your own praying to the Father and you can indeed say, Our Father, dear Father, my Father. Jesus taught us to pray that way. We can go to the Father. We can petition of Him the things that are the needs in our lives. And to say that Jesus, when you, when you start to pray to say, I can't pray except to say, Jesus, pray, go to the Father for me. It's like here again taking an earthly analogy and having two children as a father, an earthly father. And you have two children, one's very good and one's a little bit rebellious. You know, you have most of, if any of you have more than one, you're probably going to have one that's really sweet and always precious and into practically nothing and one who's just a mess. All right, so if you'll look at it like that, of course, in this analogy that I'm going to use, Jesus would be the perfect one and we would be the mess. But what, it would, hap- what would happen here, according to what he's saying can happen, we can go straight to the Father and tell him. We can confess our sins. We can say, Father, we have made a mess of things. We do disappoint you. I know that all our sin is sin against you. We can say that to the Father. We can say that to him. And we can express to him the needs of our life. And he hears and loves us and answers those needs. Answers those needs. It's that direct. And it would be like this, this uh, rebellious son going to the good son, see, and saying to him, listen, I really have need of a suit of clothes, but I can't possibly go ask dad for it. So would you. You're in good graces with him. This, this is kind of personal because I remember we used to send my little sister who was always sweet and perfect in to ask for the car. So I thought about this and she could get it. Man, if we'd gone, we wouldn't have had a chance in the world of getting the car that night. But if little Barbara, little blonde curly Barbara went in with blue eyes, Daddy melted and just would give her anything. I mean, he, there was nothing he would say no to where she was concerned. But if this were the case, and I had to go through Barbara to go to Daddy and ask for everything, I would have no relationship with my father. You see the difference? But how much better it would be if I could go to Daddy and say, Listen, Daddy, I, you know, I know, I know you, I've been a disappointment to you. I know that there are times you could pull your hair out over me because I'm always into something. I'm just a mess, you know, but I'm so glad you love me anyway. I need. I really do. And I know you can meet that need. Do you think he would have turned me away? Not in a million years. See, I skirted the issue. I should have gone right to him and put my arms around him, blink my brown eyes at him or multicolored or whatever, and had that relationship I needed with him that's, that I missed a lot of by going through Barbara for everything, see. And what he would have done when he would have said, Honey, I'm so glad that you feel like you can come and that you really, I appreciate your sincereness in, you know, in telling me that you're sorry. And whatever it is that you need, listen, I want to help you. I want, that's what parents say. All right, this is kind of what he's saying here. You won't have to go through me. You won't have to say, Jesus, go to the Father and talk for me. You can go to the Father because of the Son to be sure. We are clothed in His righteousness, and that gets us there. But once we're clothed in His righteousness, we can go right directly into His presence and ask of Him what we will. Ask what we will, according to his, go back to this. All right, so anyway, when this happens, what, what would that do if we don't even have to ask Jesus to pray for us? What do you think happens when there are people who think they have to say, Mother Mary, pray for us, 
St. Luke, pray for us. St. Mark, pray for us. You know, I mean, this is ridiculous to think you've got to ask somebody. If Jesus said you don't even have to get me to pray for you, how ridiculous to think we've got to get somebody else to go in and intervene for us. There are no intermediaries, intermediaries that are necessary as far as the child and father are concerned. We can go to him in Jesus' name. We need to learn that. This reminds me of the lady, <clears throat> the uh, lady who was on the Holy Land trip with us, Mrs. Schwartz. And she was a devout Catholic. I mean, she really, honestly, was one of the devoutest people I've ever known. And I appreciated her sincerity. I really did. She was a beautiful lady. But one night she said to me, she, we were sitting in, in a restaurant in Athens. And she said, um, you know, about every seven years, I get so sick. Man, I'm so sick. Every seven years, she gets really sick. In the meantime, she's kind of sick. She's never well. <clears throat> but... In, the, in between the seven-year periods when she was kind of sick, she would never dream of asking for anything because the son is so busy, she said. Jesus is so busy. I couldn't possibly bother him because he's so good to come to me every seven years. So she says during this seven-year interval, she goes to Mother Mary. And she was sincere. She was so sincere. And she says, Mother, I, I know your son is so busy. And I'm not making fun. I really am not. She was totally sincere, but she said, Mother, I know your son is so busy, and I hate to bother him. Now, I'm not so sick right now that I have to have him, and I really hate to bother him. So what I would like for you to do is tell your son, go on and take care of everybody else, you know, now. And then when he gets around to me, when he gets around to me, I would appreciate it if he could give me a little attention. And I said, Miss Schwartz, <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> I said, Jesus is God. He's God. He's not limited like we are. And he can take care of every single one of us in an instant, at the same precise instant. He's God. He's not limited. And if you need something, you don't have to go to his mother <laughs> and ask her to tell him to come to you one day when he has time. He has time the very minute you Go to him and ask of him, you know, the things that are the needs in your life. You know, the, the saddest thing about that, and I think it just about broke my heart, uh, a few years after we got back, maybe about a year ago, I read the obituary column. I don't know, this is kind of, I don't know whether it's morbid or not, but I'm always sure I'm going to find somebody in there I might miss, I guess, or maybe I'm looking for me. <laughs> I probably haven't got sense enough to know when I, you know, I might find out one day that I missed, you know, <laughs> but anyway, I do read it, and, and I found Miss Schwartz's name in it, and I had never been to a Catholic Mass before, and I pay my respects to her and to, you know, to speak to Mr. Schwartz, and during the course of that funeral Mass, I have never been so depressed in my entire life. That woman had given her life and faithfulness to the Catholic Church, and at that point, after she had died, there was no assurance not one tad of assurance that she was going to one day make it into the bosom of the Father. There was so much to do, but in the midst of all of it, one time after the other, they would say, have mercy, have mercy on, and they would call her by name. Please have mercy on her soul. And we pray that one day our prayers, you know, that one day she will be right, one day she'll be with you. But all the way through there, there was not one word of assurance that her obedience and faithfulness through those years, you know, would cause her any kind of, 
safety in the arms of Jesus in, the, in death. And that tore me up. I came home and cried my eyes out to think that, you know, that she didn't even know, they didn't even know that she would one day, if enough prayers were said, I guess, she would get there. And if God would have mercy on her, that's what they said, God have mercy on her soul. You know, and one day take her. I think that's sad. Anyway, here is, is something that refutes that. Jesus said, you go straight to the Father and you go because he loves you. He loves you himself. The Father loves us because you have loved me and believe that I came from God and I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. He gives a fourfold foundation here. Something you need to grasp, he said. Something we need to grasp. Here's the, the entirety of his earthly life. Listen. He said, I came from the Father. That was the nativity, his incarnation. He came from the Father to earth and became flesh. And I have come into the world. That's his mission and his teaching and his ministry. He was in the world. And he said, now I'm leaving the world. That was by way of the passion, by way of the cross. That was the way back to the Father. The cross is the way for the Father to, to the Father for us too. And I'm going to the Father. That's the ascension and the return to glory. You see how he included everything in that statement he made right there. I came from the Father. I came into the world. I'm going back by way of the cross, and I'm going back to ascend back to the Father, back to heaven's glory. All right, his disciples said, why, this is plain speaking. This is no figure of speech. They think they understand at this point. I, I marvel at them. I really do. When you read, you really marvel at the fact that at this point, they said, we understand what you're saying now. I understand what you, this is no figure of speech. We are certain now. We're certain that you know everything and do not need to be questioned. That goes back up to verse 23, where he said, you won't you know, be questioning me anymore. You won't need to ask any questions. So they thought they understood what he was talking about. Because of this, we believe that you've come from God, they said. That astounding statement that declares, he had declared his, his deity. He had declared his oneness with the Father. And they say, now we understand. We really understand what you're talking about. They were so overconfident is what they were. They were positive. They had everything right in a nutshell. And they had everything they needed. But they were to find out within a, a matter of hours that their faith was not deep enough to sustain them. It simply was not deep enough to carry them through the storms. You know, it's got to be more grounded than that. It's got to be a part and parcel of a, a, a living experience. You've got to experience these storms before you know for a fact and have the confidence that you can make it through them. All right, so they said, and what Jesus answers, he says, do you now believe? You can almost hear the way he said, do you really now believe? You know, is your faith, is your faith so fixed and so firmly established that you are going to be able to make it through the next hours and prove that it wasn't? Prove that it wasn't. They thought they could make it through anything. Jesus says, look, the hour is coming, has indeed already come, when you are all to be scattered, sheep without a shepherd, far time, sheep without a shepherd, scattered, but at least each to his own home. Remember Jesus said foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't have of them, left him. Every single one of them deserted him, and every single one of them went to his own place of comfort and safety and left him alone. But that was the way it had to be. This was one thing that had to be done alone. He was the only one who could do it. But the loneliness of it, if you ever really grasp the loneliness of it, he had to do it alone to be sure. But wouldn't it have been wonderful if he had had throngs of people he had ministered to and taught surrounding him in a time of need, encouraging him? Wouldn't that have been wonderful? 
But that he said, that's not what's going to happen. It didn't. It didn't. You're going to leave me alone. But then the most beautiful thing, I think, one of the most beautiful things that I think he's ever said, in spite of what he had been through, and he had been through hell already, and was going through pure hell within a matter of hours, he said, I am not alone. I'm not alone. You can desert me. All human beings can desert me. I'm never alone because the Father's with me. I've told you all this so that in me you may find peace. You will never find peace in any other place or any other thing except in Jesus. He said, in me you can find peace. You'll know when all this happens and when you're scattered, when you're deserting me, and when you begin to feel guilt and all the pains that go with it, you can remember, I knew this was going to happen. You know, I'm not that disappointed. I knew it was going to happen. And don't you wallow in self-pity. You begin to find a deeper relationship with me and sink into me in such a way that you find the peace that I, can, I alone can give you. He said, in the world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to, it's right, on, right out here, right in front of you. But he said, but courage, the victory is mine. He told them just before the cross, the victory is mine. When they were going to look and think he had died and that was the end of it and they had won, He's going to want them to remember his words. The victory, the victory is mine. It's forthcoming, but it's mine to be sure. I have conquered the world. He had conquered the world really from the very beginning of time because all this was a part of God's plan. And God knew that it would come to fulfillment in Christ on the cross. So he said, the victory is already mine. I have conquered the world. The victory was his from the moment he condescended to do this thing to die for us and he said and in me you too can overcome in spite of yourselves in spite of yourselves this is the, the the parting word of encouragement and victory that he gave to them no matter what happens no matter how hard the times are remember you can be more than conquerors in me you can find peace and joy and contentment in me I wish they had had that in the next few hours I wish they had really grasped that in the next few hours. It took until Jesus ascended back for Luke's account to tell us now they were full of joy. Now they were full of joy. They had seen him in his resurrected body. They knew he was alive. They had seen the nail prints and the, the wound in his side. They had seen all these things, and now they could be full of joy. But for days there, they were full of grief, according just exactly like he said it would be. Thing that he didn't want to do for this young man because he had been of service and aid to his son and all he needed was Charlie's name. He could go to the father and I want you to remember this a little later on. He went in personally to the father, right? He didn't have to go by way of anyway. The father came, they met. The two of them together met. It was in Charlie's name because of Charlie's name that they got together. That was to be, that was sure. It was Charlie's name that made this possible, but they met on a one-to-one -one basis because of Charlie's name, and the, the father of Charlie began to answer the things that were needed in this, this young man's life. This is kind of the way prayer is, and that's a, that's a true story, but it's very much, it helps us to undergo in Jesus' name. You see, the father loved the son so much and if we're faithful to the Son, that gives us that entrance, obedient to the Son, help the Son, we can go into the Father and He says, whatever it is that you need, whatever your needs are, that's what I want to do for you because of my Son. So we need the Son. You can't get to the Father without the Son. I was watching a television program the other day and I heard somebody say something that was so 
in error. I couldn't believe it. I almost had a heart attack right there. But he said about the Jews, he said, we have so much in common. We have the same heavenly father. We don't have the same heavenly father. To as many as received him, to them gave the power to become sons of God. We have a relationship. The only people who have a heavenly father in God are the ones who have received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. So we don't have a heavenly father in common with anybody who has rejected the son. You remember that. I almost fell off my chair when he said we had a heavenly father in common. They've rejected the son and they cannot get to the father except by acceptance of the Son. He said that. All right, so he says, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be complete. We, we have not because we ask not. We just muddle through life and we just wrestle with every power and every principality. Man, we just have a tough time because we don't understand what provision is there in prayer. We have never grasped the fact that that provision is there. And we can go to Him. We can express our needs. Now, remember this. All this is involved. But when we go, whatever it is in the area of witnessing, whatever it is, if it's in accordance with His will, if you go to your father, your earthly father, and you ask of Him something that He knows is wrong for you, He's not going to give you permission to do that or give that to you, right? You wouldn't do that if you're a responsible parent at all. And God is much more responsible and much wiser than earthly parents parents are so keep that in mind and that makes it easy to go to him and say Lord this is you know father this is what my need is this is what I think but it doesn't matter what I think what I really want more than anything else is that you meet the needs of my life according to your will according to your will and when you pray like that begin to watch the joy become complete you're right in the palm of his hand right in the center of his will and your joy is complete turn to first Thessalonians uh, 5, 16, and 17. Okay, it says, Be always joyful, pray continually, give thanks whatever happens, for this is what God in Christ wills for you. It's really the same thing. Paul was saying what he had learned from this principle or this portion of Scripture over here. Be always joyful. The way to be joyful is to pray continually. I mean, be in a constant state of prayer, right in the center of his palm at all times. For this is what Christ... Give thanks whatever happens. That's a little tricky part he put in there that you'd almost wish he'd left out because I think it's easy to, easier to pray and it's easier to, uh, to do almost anything than to be thankful in all things. To give thanks in all things. This is the will of God for you. Is to say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I thank you for it. I thank you for it. And there's where we make our biggest mistakes, and that's why our joy is not full. But that's one of the places he begins to speak of your joy. Philippians 4, 6 is another one. Have no anxiety, but in everything make your request known to God in prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Then the peace of God, which is beyond our utmost understanding, will keep guard over your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. Pray about everything. Don't worry about anything. And in all things, give thanksgiving and watch your joy. Watch your joy become complete. This is what he's talking about there. Till now, I've been using figures of speech. He said, oh, one thing I want to, to share with you that I read, it was in Arthur Pink's commentary, but he says John Gerhardt is responsible for this. But the benefit of prayer, he says, is so great it can't be expressed. The statements he makes about prayer, prayer is the dove 
which when sent out returns again, bringing with it the olive leaf, namely peace of heart. Peace of heart. You want peace of heart? Prayer is the dove that brings the olive leaf of peace of heart to us. Prayer is the golden chain which God holds fast and lets not go until he blesses. The blessing comes as a result of prayer. Prayer is the Moses rod which brings forth the water of consolation out of the rock of salvation. Prayer is what consoles us. You see, all the things consoles, blesses, peace comes from prayer. Prayer is Samson's jawbone which smites down our enemies. Prayer is David's harp before which the evil spirit flies. Prayer is how we defeat. The devil's defeated. Prayer is how our enemies are taken care of. Prayer is the key to heaven's treasures. And what's the one area of our life that's most neglected? Prayer. If prayer is all of these things, tell me why we're not on our knees in prayer, the biggest portion of our waking hours. Which brings us to a point where our pastor is, is starting for us, getting us started in a, a, a prayer vigil around the clock, 24-hour prayer time. Now, if prayer does all these things, would you tell me why every single born-again child of God in this fellowship would not be rushing to give his name to be a part of this kind of prayer? Okay, we have not because we ask not. We don't know how to pray. And Jesus said, this is the key to your being able to stand in times of trouble and have peace and joy in the midst of it. All right, so he says, till now I've been using figures of speech. A time is coming when I shall no longer use figures, but tell you of the Father in plain words. When that day comes, you will make your request in my name. And I do not say that I shall pray to the Father for you, for the Father loves you himself because... You have loved me and believe that I came from God. And he makes a statement after this, but let's stop right there and see what he says. Because just a few Tuesday nights ago, I had a lady out in my Bible study who was there just for that one night who didn't understand this. this I didn't even know this was here. I wish I'd known it that night. But she said, you know, you keep talking about praying to the Father. And we can't pray to God, she said. God is too high up. God is too lofty. God is too perfect. The only person we can pray to is Jesus. And Jesus has to pray for us. Well, Jesus is, per is just as perfect as God the Father. But she didn't understand that. And she felt that she couldn't go to the Father, see. Now listen to what he said here. He says, uh, the Father loves you himself. Listen, we think of God, the Father, as the, the judge, the one who just throws out judgment, and we think of Jesus as some sweet person who came along to pacify God the Father. But the Scripture tells us that God the Father loved us in that while we were yet sinners, He sent His Son to die for us. God has always loved us. God has loved us from the very beginning of time. When He created us, He loved us. There's always been this tremendous love and hunger for us to come to Him and fellowship with Him. Now remember that. And Jesus said, I won't have to go to the Father and pray for you. I won't have to do that for you. You can go into the presence of the Father by way of in my name to be sure. My name will be attached to it. But you can do your own praying to the Father and you can indeed say, Our Father, dear Father, my Father. Jesus taught us to pray that way. We can go to the Father. We can petition of Him the things that are in the needs in our lives. 
And to say that Jesus, when you, when you start to pray to say, I can't pray except to say, Jesus, pray, go to the Father for me, is like here again taking an earthly analogy and having two children as a father, an earthly father, and you have two children, one's very good and one's a little bit rebellious. You know, you have most of, if any of you have more than one, it's really sweet and always precious and into practically nothing, and one who's just a mess. All right, so if you'll look at it like that, of course, in this analogy that I'm going to use, Jesus would be the perfect one and we would be the mess. But what, it would ha- what would happen here, according to what he's saying can happen, we can go straight to the Father and tell him. We can confess our sins. We can say, Father, we have made a mess of things. We do disappoint you. I know that all our sin is sin against you. We can say that to the Father. We can say that to him. And we can express to him the needs of our life. And he hears and loves us and answers those needs. Answers those needs. It's that direct. And it would be like this, this uh, rebellious son going to the good son, see, and saying to him, listen, I really have need of a suit of clothes, but I can't possibly go ask dad for it. So would you. You're in good graces with him. This, this is kind of personal because I remember we used to send my little sister who was always sweet and perfect in to ask for the car. So I thought about this and she could get it. Man, if we'd gone, we wouldn't have had a chance in the world of getting the car that night. But if little Barbara, little blonde curly Barbara went in with blue eyes, Daddy melted and just would give her anything. I mean, he, there was nothing he would say no to where she was concerned. But if this were the case, and I had to go through Barbara to go to Daddy and ask for everything, I would have no relationship with my father. You see the difference? But how much better it would be if I could go to Daddy and say, Listen, Daddy, I, you know, I know, I know you, I've been a disappointment to you. I know that there are times you could pull your hair out over me because I'm always into something. I'm just a mess, you know, but I'm so glad you love me. Anyway, Daddy, listen, I, I really have a need. I really do. And I know you can meet that need. Do you think he would have turned me away? Not in a million years. See, I skirted the issue. I should have gone right to him and put my arms around him, blinked my brown eyes at him or multicolored or whatever, and had that relationship I needed with him that I missed a lot of by going through Barbara for everything, see. And what he would have done when he would have said, Honey, I'm so glad that you feel like you can come and that you really appreciate your sincereness in, you know, in telling me that you're sorry. And whatever it is that you need, listen, I want to help you. I want, that's what parents say. All right, this is kind of what he's saying here. You won't have to go through me. You won't have to say, Jesus, go to the Father and talk for me. You can go to the Father because of the Son, to be sure. We are clothed in His righteousness, and that gets us there. But once we're clothed in His righteousness, we can go right directly into His presence and ask of Him what we will. Ask what we will, according to his, go back to this. All right, so anyway, when this happens, what, what would that do if we don't even have to ask Jesus to pray for us? What do you think happens when there are people who think they have to say, Mother Mary, pray for us. St. Luke, pray for us. St. Mark, pray for us. You know, I mean, this is ridiculous to think you've got to ask somebody. If Jesus said you don't even have to get me to pray for you, how ridiculous to think we've got to get somebody else to go in and intervene for us. There are no intermediaries that are necessary as far as the child and father are concerned. We can go to him in Jesus' name. We need to learn that. This reminds me of the lady, <clears throat> the uh, lady who was on the Holy Land trip with us, Mrs. Schwartz. 
And she was a devout Catholic. I mean, she really, honestly, was one of the devoutest people I've ever known. And I appreciated her sincerity. I really did. She was a beautiful lady. But one night she said to me, she, we were sitting in, in a restaurant in Athens, and she said, um, you know, about every seven years, I get so sick. Man, I'm so sick. Every seven years, she gets really sick. In the meantime, she's kind of sick. She's never well. <clears throat> but in, the me- in between the seven-year periods when she was kind of sick, she would never dream of asking for anything because the sun is... Jesus is so busy, I couldn't possibly bother him because he's so good to come to me every seven years. So she says during this seven-year interval, she goes to Mother Mary. And she was sincere. She was so sincere. And she says, Mother, I, I know your son is so busy. And I'm not making fun. I really am not. She was totally sincere. But she said, Mother, I know your son is so busy. And I hate to bother him. Now, I'm not so sick right now that I have to have him. And I really hate to bother him. So what I would like for you to do is tell your son, go on and take care of everybody else, you know, now. And then when he gets around to me, when he gets around to me, I would appreciate it if he could give me a little attention. And I said, Miss Schwartz, (laughs) you don't understand. (laughs) I said, Jesus is God. He's God. He's not limited like we are. And he can take care of every single one of us in an instant, at the same precise instant. He's God. He's not limited. And if you need something, you don't have to go to his mother and ask her to tell him to come to you one day when he has time. He has time the very minute you go to him and ask of him, you know, the things that are the needs in your life. You know, the the saddest thing about that, and I think it just about broke my heart, a few years after we got back, maybe about a year ago, I read the obituary column. I don't know, this is kind of, I don't know whether it's morbid or not, but I'm always sure I'm going to find somebody in there I might miss, I guess, or maybe I'm looking for me. (laughs) I probably haven't got sense enough to know when I, I might find out one day that I missed, you know, (laughs) <laughs> but anyway, I do read it, and, and I found Miss Schwartz's name in it, and I had never been to a Catholic Mass before, and I went, you know, to pay my respects to her and to, you know, to speak to Mr. Schwartz, and during the course of that funeral Mass, I've never been so depressed in my entire life. That woman had given her life and faithfulness to the Catholic Church. And at that point, after she had died, there was no assurance, not one tad of assurance, that she was going to one day make it into the bosom of the Father. There was so much to do, but in the midst of all of it, one time after the other, they would say, have mercy, have mercy on, and they would call her by name, please have mercy on her soul. And we pray that one day our prayers, you know, that one day she will be right, one day she'll be with you. But all the way through there, there was not one word of assurance that her obedience and faithfulness through those years, you know, would cause her any kind of safety in the arms of Jesus in in death. And that tore me up. I came home and cried my eyes out to think that, you know, that she didn't even know, they didn't even know that she would one day, if enough prayers were said, I guess, she would get there. And if God would have mercy on her, that's what they said. God have mercy on her soul. You know, and one day take her. 
I think that's sad. Anyway, here is, is something that refutes that. Jesus said, you go straight to the Father and you go because He loves you. He loves you Himself. The Father loves us because you have loved me and believed that I came from God and I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. He gives a fourfold foundation here. Something you need to grasp, he said. Something we need to grasp. Here's the, the entirety of his earthly life. Listen. He said, I came from the Father. That was the nativity, his incarnation. He came from the Father to earth and became flesh. And I have come into the world. That's his mission and his teaching and his ministry. He was in the world. And he said, now I'm leaving the world. That was by way of the passion, by way of the cross. That was the way back to the Father. The cross is the way for the Father to, to the Father for us too. And I'm going to the Father. That's the ascension and the return to glory. You see how he included everything in that statement he made right there. I came from the Father, I came into the world, I was, and I'm going back to ascend, back to the Father, back to heaven's glory. All right, his disciples said, why, this is plain speaking. This is no figure of speech. They think they understand at this point. I, I marvel at them. I really do. When you read, you really marvel at the fact that at this point, they said, we understand what you're saying now. I understand what you, this is no figure of speech. We are certain now. We're certain that you know everything and do not need to be questioned. That goes back up to verse 23, where he said, you won't you know, be questioning me anymore. You won't need to ask any questions. So they thought they understood what he was talking about because of this we believe that you've come from God they said that astounding statement that declares he had declared his his deity he had declared his oneness with the father and they say now we understand we really understand what you're talking about they were so overconfident is what they were they were positive they had everything right in a nutshell and they had everything they needed but they were to find out within a, a matter of hours that their faith was not deep enough to sustain them it simply was not deep enough to carry them through the storms you know, it's got to be more grounded than that. It's got to be a part and parcel of a, a, a living experience. You've got to experience these storms before you know for a fact and have the confidence that you can make it through them. All right, so they said, and what Jesus answers, he says, do you now believe? You can almost hear the way he said, do you really now believe? You know, is your faith, is your faith so fixed and so firmly established that you are going to be able to make it through the next hours and improve that it wasn't? prove that it wasn't. They thought they could make it through anything. Jesus says, look, the hour is coming, has indeed already come, when you are all to be scattered, sheep without a shepherd, far time, sheep without a shepherd, scattered, but at least each to his own home. Remember Jesus said foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't have a home. Every single one of them left him. Every single one of them deserted him, and every single one of them went to his own place of comfort and safety and left him alone. But that was the way it had to be. This was one thing that had to be done alone. He was the only one who could do it. But the loneliness of it, if you ever really grasp the loneliness of it, he had to do it alone to be sure. But wouldn't it have been wonderful if he had had throngs of people he had ministered to and taught surrounding him in a time of need, encouraging him? Wouldn't that have been wonderful? But that, he said, that's not what's going to happen. It didn't. It didn't. You're going to leave me alone. But then the most beautiful thing, I think, one of the most beautiful things that I think he's ever said, in spite of what he had been through, and he had been through hell already, and was going through pure hell within a matter of hours, he said, I am not alone. 
I'm not alone. You can desert me. All human beings can desert me. I'm never alone because the Father's with me. I've told you all this so that in me you may find peace. You will never find peace in any other place or any other thing except in Jesus. He said, in me you can find peace. You'll know when all this happens and when you're scattered, when you're deserting me, and when you begin to feel guilt and all the pains that go with it, you can remember, I knew this was going to happen. You know, I'm not that disappointed. I knew it was going to happen. And don't you wallow in self-pity. You begin to find a deeper relationship with me and sink into me in such a way that you find the peace that I, can, I alone can give you. He said, in the world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to, it's right, on, right out here, right in front of you. But he said, but courage, the victory is mine. He told him just before the cross, the victory is mine. When they were going to look and think he had died and that was the end of it and they had won, He's going to want them to remember his words. The victory, the victory is mine. It's forthcoming, but it's mine to be sure. I have conquered the world. He had conquered the world really from the very beginning of time because all this was a part of God's plan. And God knew that it would come to fulfillment in Christ on the cross. So he said, the victory is already mine. I have conquered the world. The victory was his from the moment he condescended to do this thing, to die for us, to can overcome in spite of yourselves, in spite of yourselves. This is the, the, the parting word of encouragement and victory that he gave to them. No matter what happens, no matter how hard the times are, remember, you can be more than conquerors in me. You can find peace and joy and contentment in me. I wish they had had that in the next few hours. I wish they had really grasped that in the next few hours. It took until Jesus ascended back for Luke's account to tell us now they were full of joy. Now they were full of joy. They had seen him in his resurrected body. They knew he was alive. They had seen the nail prints and the, the wound in his side. They had seen all these things, and now they could be full of joy. But for days there, they were full of grief, according just exactly like he said it would be. 